investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 55 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is a Friday, February 21st. It looks like spring is in the air and Q4 earnings season in full wing. In addition to earnings, there's been a lot of interesting M&A activity that we want to touch on this week. For example, Morgan Stanley acquiring E-Trade Financial for $13 billion as consolidation of the discount brokerages continues. Now, this was perhaps the largest financial deal since the global financial crisis 2008-2009. What's driving mergers in this sector? We're going to chat about that. Mutual fund companies Leg Mason and Franklin Resources merge in a $6.5 billion deal. Why are these traditional asset managers, these mutual fund managers, rushing to merge? Real estate firm Starlight and Kingset. They're acquiring Northview Apartment REIT for $4.8 billion. Why are apartments in such high demand from investors? And lastly, Domino's Pizza stock surges 25% on cooking fourth quarter results. What has made it a top performing stock? Wall Street investment bank Morgan Stanley agreed to acquire online discount brokerage firm E-Trade in an all-stock 13 billion dollar merger. In terms of the deal, uh, investors are receiving 1.0432 Morgan Stanley shares for each E-Trade share that they own. So an all stock swap here and just comparing the share price performance of these two over the past year or so, obviously E-Trades come under pressure. Uh, from a competitive standpoint, number one, you had uh, Charles Schwab come out with zero commission trading, which basically blew up you know, t- TD Ameritrade and E-Trades business. Uh, so that was certainly punishing for the stock. Then subsequent to that, we had Charles Schwab go and announce the acquisition of TD Ameritrade, which effectively left E-Trade out in the cold. But now we're seeing them get a dance partner in Morgan Stanley. So certainly things were looking poorly for E-Trade investors, but now pretty good consideration uh, for their shares here. Now some background on E-Trade. They have 5.2 million client accounts and over 360 billion of retail client assets. This compares to Morgan Stanley's 3 million client accounts and 2.7 trillion of client assets. So the strategic rationale here uh, for Morgan Stanley is to move away from their traditional Wall Street investment banking and trading where it's more transactional based, not very reliable and stable cash flows. They're have been moving to more wealth and investment management over the past you know, 10 years, ever since CEO James Gorman uh, became CEO over there. After this deal, Morgan Stanley will have uh, 57% of its pre-tax profits from wealth management and investment management. So certainly moving way away from those more transactional 
based uh, revenue streams. What are your thoughts on this pretty huge financial deal? I mean, 13 billion, like I said, largest since the financial crisis and, um, you know, really exciting times in the brokerage space. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to go into a little bit of the strategic rationale as, you know, in addition to E-Trade's wealth management and brokerage lines, uh, they're also one of the largest U.S. stock public stock plan administrators. And so that actually really aligns well with Morgan Stanley's 2019 acquisition of Calgary-based uh, Solium Capital. Uh, which does the exact same thing, except with more Canadian exposure. And really what the rationale for, you know, it, it, it is a profitable business on its own public stock plan administration, but they really use it as a pipeline to their brokerage business so that once those plans, once those in investors theoretically get rich off of their stock options, that then they, you know, funnel them right into their wealth advisory business. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. And then as well on the, this acquisition, they did mention that they have $800 million of integration costs, but they expect to achieve profitability of the, through the transaction through their run rate synergies, uh, of which they're about, they've estimated to be 555, $550 million, which would come from $400 million of regular cost synergies, and then $150 million of funding synergies, which I'll get into in just a moment. But one interesting thing on the cost synergy side is that Morningstar pointed out that Morgan Stanley may be underestimating some of the cost synergies as these, this $400 million represents about 25% of E-Trade's expense base. And if you compare that to the TD Ameritrade Schwab deal, uh, TD Ameritrade or Schwab was going to real, realize about 65% synergies on their expense base. Mm -hmm. So there may be a little, there, now don't get me wrong, those businesses are you know, a lot more aligned. There's yeah, a lot more, more overlap. overlap for sure. So, but whether there's that much of a delta between these two deals remains to be seen. Yeah, perhaps they're not underestimating, but being more conservative, that could be another argument there. E exactly, and conservatism in M&A is quite re rational. Um, but getting into where do these funding synergies come and what exactly is this? Well, it'll really just come in the form of uh, E-Trade's $56 billion in low-cost retail bank deposits where their cost of deposits, what they're paying to the investor is 34 basis points. Right, it's just cash sitting in their brokerage account. Exactly, yeah. which they is what, what they're paying is 34 basis points versus Morgan Stanley's 109 basis points. And really all this means is that they can take that cash and use it, use this for lending out to other aspects of their business. So it really just lessens their cost of capital, allowing them to earn a higher spread on other lines of business. And there's a pretty different divergent client base here, obviously. Know the white shoe Morgan Stanley, fairly wealthy clients, and discount brokerage E Trade is more so the uh, clients with lower net worth, kind of retail traders, much much smaller accounts that wouldn't necessarily have access to a Morgan Stanley broker. Absolutely, and when when this deal was initially announced, uh, we we noticed that this did trade through the deal terms, implying that there may be an overbid uh, potential where that spread has come down and now does trade at a discount. But do you think there's any chance? Of of an overbid here, Julian? Like you said, when it was announced, it was trading slightly through the terms, basically a negative 0.2% merger yield. Now I believe it's at 1% uh, annualized return, which 
even if it's a no risk deal, that's insufficient on its own terms. So arguably the market is still pricing in some optionality on an overbid here from a competitor. The first one rumored was Goldman Sachs, but they're fairly quick to squash that. At this point, they, uh, they pretty much denied it to the media, so I think that's unlikely. We also saw CEO of Interactive Brokers come out so that they did have discussions, but they couldn't make the deal work. And this is a $13 billion deal. I mean, not a ton of potential competitors uh, who can write that size of check. So certainly you can never say never. Um, but what you need to recognize is that slight discount where it's trading at. That's not a normalized spread. That, that definitely is pricing in a bit of upside optionality on a potential overbid. Just wanted to comment on some of the individual stock action aside from the spread. Obviously, E-Trade stock traded way up. Big win for E-Trade shareholders here up almost 22% on announcement. Morgan Stanley, just given the potential dilution to book value, um, some dilution there. Obviously, short selling pressure from hedge funds, arbitrageurs, shorting the stock when you put on that pair trade. So Morgan Stanley stock falling almost 5% on the news. So some market action there. They did indicate that they did not run a formal auction process. I suspect that's perhaps why some market participants are willing to pay up for some of that optionality. The other really interesting aspect here is that Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman, he actually said that he's been eyeing E-Trade since 2002. So 18 years ago, back when he was an executive at Merrill Lynch. Then again, he reached out in 2007 for discussions, but the global financial crisis shortly unfolded after that, which made all deals kind of go away. So it's really interesting deal here. A $13 billion acquisition that really looks like E-Trade shareholders were kind of rescued here by a much, much larger competitor. And it's interesting because I believe the TD Ameritrade Schwab spread tightened a little just on easing competitive concerns because now people can argue that they have a significantly stronger competitor in the combined Morgan Stanley E-Trade pro forma company. Absolutely. And one other thing that I did want to highlight, just because there is a lot of interesting deal dynamics that usually don't come out in the media surrounding, yes, there wasn't a formal auction process, but this was a deal that was, you know, kind of informally shopped around the street. And so you had mentioned Interactive Brokers, their CEO, uh, Thomas Pet Petterfee, but what he, his comments were, was that this Emmett Morgan Stanley deal is fair and that his deal team arrived at a similar price. Now, why that is interesting is because what he said, why well, the reason for a deal not being done in his terms was the fact that E-Trade holds their customer cash balances in long-term government bonds, mm -hmm. which, which yield a higher yield for them. And that was something that he was absolutely against. Whereas Interactive Brokers, they hold their customer cash balance in, in very short-term T-bills, which are a lot less volatile and have a little bit less yield, well, significantly less yield. Um, but why that's interesting is because they still came to around the same deal price despite having a lower amount of revenue syner funding synergies that Morgan Stanley mentioned. So that could lend a little bit more credence to there being a little bit of upside on the cost synergies. This week, we had a big mutual fund company merger with Franklin Resources and Leg Mason announcing a $6.5 billion merger. 
Now, Franklin Resources, which manages nearly $700 billion in assets, largely under its Franklin Templeton brand, agreed to acquire Lake Mason in an all-cash $50 per share deal. This was a premium of nearly 23%, which is kind of in line where we've seen other deals get done. The combined company will have about $1.5 trillion in assets under management. This makes them the sixth largest global asset manager behind companies such as BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, etc. Now talk about strategic rationale here. What's really happened over the past basically 10, 12 years, if not a bit before that, but this trend has really accelerated recently as low cost passive index funds, ETFs, is, have really drawn investors away from the classic stock picking mutual funds. So these mutual funds have seen uh, obviously fee pressure, a significant fee pressure from the competitive dynamics due to low cost passive index funds. And then obviously the S&P 500 has just performed extraordinarily over the past decade. And the vast majority of mutual fund managers have not kept up with that. So it's pretty hard to justify their you know, 1.5% annual fee when the, you can buy an S&P 500 index fund for 0.03%, a small fraction. So basically investors really aren't rewarding your traditional stock picking anymore. Perhaps the market's gotten too efficient from a US centric long only stock picking perspective. The other thing is just, you know, systematic strategies. I think investors are more so willing to give those a try just because they understand what they're getting into versus you look at a stock picker. They don't really have a consistent process. There's just too many human biases involved in there. And, and it's just, you know, there isn't uh, any sort of uh, standard process. That's what really resonates uh, amongst investors for these more quantitative strategies. So to give you some details here, these active stock pickers, these long-only mutual funds have lost hundreds of billions of dollars in assets. So profits are down quite a bit. Some numbers over the past decade, U.S. equity index mutual funds and ETFs have taken in about $1.6 trillion while active mutual funds such as Lake Mason and Franklin Templeton have lost $1.4 trillion. So trillions of dollars flow have flowed out of mutual funds into these low-cost index tracking ETFs. Making it such that now passive funds tracking indexes like the S&P 500 control more than half of the U.S. stock market, which is just quite wild because, you know, no one's actually analyzing those securities. They're just sort of buying blindly according to these formulas. And the thing about the S&P 500, it's not based off of any sort of fundamentals, i.e. valuation, uh, quality, um, no sort of proven factors such as that. The only thing that is the S&P 500 relies on, it's largely market capitalization. I believe they also have a profitability checklist in order to get introduced into the index. And that's one major reason why, for example, Tesla isn't yet in the index because they haven't had uh, four profitable quarters in a row. But I digress. Really interesting deal here. If we look at the merger dynamics, current spread roughly 2% annualized, so nothing huge. Fairly low risk deals, no major rate low risk deal, no major regulatory concerns, market pricing in, about a 96% chance that this deal gets done 
successfully here. And I mean, there's major implications if these two large shops are joining up to form the sixth largest. It's as if the, the big need to get bigger and everyone else in the middle is kind of, you know, left out in the dust. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, and I mean, the struggles in the industry for like traditional mutual funds is somewhat reflected in the valuation of this deal on in as a percentage of AUM. They only got about about 87 basis points compared to AUM, which is a little bit light um, compared to some other, like especially alternatives. Uh, the multiples are a lot higher in yeah, terms of- 10 to 20 fold. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to go into some of the strategic rationale and then some of the background players here. Um, but in terms of Franklin, uh, you know, their strategic rationale. Really, it's just about increasing their institutional exposure. So before announcement or the uh, the current state of Franklin has about 25% of their assets being institutional money, uh, the pro forma entity will exceed 51%. So of of the uh, total assets that, that uh, like Mason has, 600 billion of those are institutional assets. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of those. So those that is a fav- quite favorable for Franklin moving forward. Uh, but as well, one other party to mention here is Tryon Fund, uh, which is led by Nelson Peltz. They have agreed to vote in favor of this transaction. They own, oh, he's an activist, right? Yes, and they own 4.5% of Leg Mason shares, and he does have some history with the company. Now, he currently sits on the board. He was he joined the board in May of 2019 uh, and has likely been pushing hard for a sale as he is an activist investor. Uh, but as well, I mean, some of his focus have been on the typical cutting costs and streamlining of the business. But even before that, so he had been a board member uh, from 2009 till 2014, where he had focused on some of the same things in, ster- in terms of streamlining the business. Uh, while he was on their board, the company did gain 75% over those five years. Um, so there was a, a little bit of history of him uh at least being involved in some of the value creation. You can make an argument about how involved uh, a board member is in the value creation, uh, but there certainly is some. Uh, as well, you know, Sullivan, uh, I, f- I forget his first name off the top of my head, but uh, like Mason CEO, he it will be in line to get $26 million due to the change of control provision uh, in his employment agreement. Golden so, parachute. Yeah, absolutely. So he is somewhat incentivized to do a deal here as yep. well, as well as Nelson Peltz just wants to get a quick win. Uh, one one last thing I would mention is that Leg Mason, in addition to a very difficult environment and the ability to realize some of these synergies uh, with the pro forma entity, is that they did have a lot more debt on their balance sheet than Franklin, uh, whereas Franklin had about 0.4 times gross debt to you. Uh, Leg Mason had 3.2 times, so a fairly levered structure for an asset manager, as you typically don't see a ton of leverage with uh, mutual fund companies. To answer the question, why are traditional asset managers rushing to merge? Well, long only mutual funds, especially in the US because they're the furthest ahead globally. This is a sunset industry. It's in secular decline. And what you see in an industry that's in secular decline is consolidation where companies merge, cut costs, and really harvest those cash flows. Like I said, US 
US is furthest along in this path. So implications to Canada. I always say Canada is five to 10 years behind the US in terms of evolution of the industry, but it's something that you'll start seeing in Canada. We are seeing mutual funds starting to decline, but that's only gonna pick up more and more as, uh, as we go in the future. And there's gonna be more and more consolidation in that space as well and what's really driving that is yeah we we talked about the movement out along only mutual funds into etfs index funds but there's sort of been a barbell approach where a lot of it has gone gone to index etfs but uh, a portion has also gone the other way to alternatives private equity uh, hedge funds venture capital real estate etc now speaking of this flood of capital into real estate Here's a deal announced this week. Northview Apartment Real Estate Investment Trust agreed to be taken private by two real estate investment firms, one being Starlight Group and the other being Kingset Capital. This deal is done at $36.25 cash per REIT unit of Northview. Some background on Northview. They own about 27,000 residential apartment units and a few hundred short-term rental apartments in eight provinces and two territories. So really spread out throughout Canada. This is one of the largest real estate deals in Canada over the past five years, almost five billion. So certainly a transaction on the larger size and really the implications here, it's just representative of the continued trend of institutional investors just pouring a ton of money into the private asset space. A lot of capital going into private real estate. We've seen Blackstone come up to Canada and do, and do a lot of big deals. They're really just desperate for yield and really searching for yield from residential apartment buildings. Specifically, I know Toronto is really hot and they're paying rich prices. And you look at uh, this Northview deal, 25% premium to net asset value. So they're paying 25% more than these assets are worth. In my opinion, what they're largely basing this deal off of is rent in increases. So that's really where uh, they're looking to gain off of this deal. But again, trying to get yield from anywhere they can and where they're viewing that these days, residential real estate. Yeah, and, and I really just wanted to, in addition to that, highlight Starlight, uh, you know, they've really come on to the Canadian scene and really established themselves as a big player in Canadian residential real estate. And just for example, right now they have $11 billion in AUM and they were the top purchaser of Canadian multifamily assets in 2008 when they bought $589 million worth of assets. Then in 2019, they doubled that, um, specifically with one single deal doubled that. Um, uh, where in late 2019, in November of 2019, they came in and we we did talk about this on our podcast with the Continuum REIT right before they were about to go public. Uh, buying Again, them with a big premium over what public market investors were will, willing to pay. I recall the cap rate, the capitalization rate, the yield being roughly 2%, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was around there. Whereas the comps in the public comps were trading in the 4% range. So a really high premium. Um, and then, so not only doubling that in 2019, now in 2020 with just starting the year with this $4.8 billion transaction. Now this is a joint venture, but even still Starlight has really established themselves as a big player in Canadian real estate. Yeah, and what's interesting is I just wanted to further that comment, just the uh, substantially higher valuations that these private investors are willing to pay above and beyond what public market investors are willing to ascribe to these assets. So that 
that's a really interesting dynamic uh, to be aware of. We talk about this thing called the illiquidity premium that used to be a, a premium return that you could earn from owning private assets. Now, where that premium return came from was the discounted multiple you're able to buy these assets due to the illiquid nature. But as we've said in the past, that relationship seems to have flip-flopped such that private market investors are paying far higher valuations than public market investors. And in my opinion, that illiquidity discount has turned into a, or should I say illiquidity premium has turned into an illiquidity discount, meaning owning private assets since you got to pay such rich prices for them you're probably going to receive lower returns than just owning public market assets nonetheless uh, some deal dynamics here northview stock up about 13 percent on the news as i indicated a 25 premium 25 percent premium to net asset value merger yield trading at roughly a 2.8 percent annualized spread so very low risk deal here highly likely to close market pricing in a 90 percent odds of success but a really interesting real estate deal with uh, pretty major implications Talking Q4 results here, shares of the pizza chain Domino's soared after the company reported fourth quarter results, which easily topped analysts' expectations. The main thing that was happening here was sentiment on the stock was depressed. Investors were concerned that the company's results would come under pressure from meal delivery companies. You have Uber Eats, you have uh, DoorDash, Grubhub, and a whole lot of these meal delivery companies, which really opened up access for people at home looking to order food. Previously, it was, you know, pizza or perhaps a, a small handful of other potential options that you could have delivered to home. But what these meal delivery companies have done, such as Uber Eats, have really opened up that access. So the past a few quarters, um, that Domino's did report, investors did become increasingly concerned. I know that I did see a number of short reports really focusing on that dynamic. However, Domino's really crushing it this quarter, disproving that thesis as same store sales growth came in at 3.4% year over year, which was significantly higher than analyst estimates at the 2.3% uh, year over year uh, expected rise in same store sales growth. Earnings per share and revenue also topping street estimates, uh, earnings per share by um, roughly 3%, revenue slightly above expectations. Now, an interesting stat here, just in terms of incredible performance by Domino's, and we're going to talk about its share price performance, but from an operational perspective, they haven't had a quarter with negative U.S. same-store sales growth in nearly a decade. What that's meaning is that you take the average store year over year, every quarter, they are growing sales uh, within the U.S., which is a really, really solid operating result. It's incredibly rare to see that out of a restaurant chain yeah, and so it's their organic growth so that not including new store ads so that being able to mask that yeah exactly and so they're just you know pumping more and more product uh, perhaps some price increases as well so that's really representative of the strength of the business model like i said the stock surging 25 percent now the results weren't incredibly good some are finding it kind of tough to justify that huge increase in share price i should mention that uh, nearly 10 percent of the float was sold short 
And there were these various short reports, uh, people bearish on the stock due to this competitive pressure from these meal delivery companies. So perhaps a lot of that gain could do to short covering because I mean, the short thesis, it really got disproved on this uh, quarterly report from Domino's. The other thing that I wanted to touch on, which is really, um, you know, a lot of people can't really believe this, but Domino's is actually one of the best performing stocks. If you look over the past 10, 20 years, people, if you ask them, you know, what's the best performing stocks that, that you can think of, they typically think of the hot technology stocks, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Apple, but no. The thing is, Domino's has absolutely crushed all of those stocks. If we go back over the past eight years, Domino's stock has been an absolute star performer and uh, amongst other timeframes as well. But I just chose eight years uh, for this example. They've returned over 1200%. Now this is nearly 40% annualized. So it's been more than a 10 bagger uh, since 2012. If we compare that 1200% rise over the past eight years to the hottest stocks on the market, these large cap growth stocks, Amazon up less than 900%, Microsoft up 640%, Facebook less than 500%, Apple and Google up less than 400%. So the point being here is that you don't need to be in these, you know, hot technology stocks, these page one story stocks to do well in your portfolio. You can find, if you look at the list of the top performing stocks, there's a lot on there, Besides software and technology, you see a restaurant company like Domino's, you see pharmaceuticals, you say you see car dealerships, retail, uh, a number of different sectors represented in that. It's not just these so-called FAMG stocks. Absolutely. And I mean, in terms of that, when you look at the past 20 years, I believe, I don't know if we spoke about it on the podcast, but we've certainly spoke about it offline, is one of the top performing stocks over the last 20 years has been Monster. Monster Ener beverage, Monster, yeah, energy yes. drinks, which I'm a huge consumer of. <laughs> yes, Juliet is very bullish on them. Um, but as well in Canada, there's Boyd Income Group, which is, you know, an auto body shop effectively. Right. And so, you know, very unsexy businesses. And if you look back, um, just to really solidify that, you know, in 2004, Domino's, Google and Salesforce, uh, all IPO'd. Now Domino's actually outpaced Google in terms of their return since then and uh, have just come in just below Salesforce, so really keeping pace. Uh, but one thing that you did mention was the sentiment on the stock um, with regards to their competitors being Uber Eats and Grubhub. Now I believe folks will remember when, when Uber was IPOing, one thing that we highlighted was that the Uber Eats division was actually a drag on their growth where they were actually shrinking year over year mm -hmm. in terms of their revenues, which was very much against the narrative that was playing out in some of these stocks such as Domino's and uh, other competitors where the narrative was that Uber Eats and Grubhub are coming in, Just Eat as well, that they're going to come in, take over the market. And that really hasn't played out, uh, especially Grub over the last couple of months, we've seen some news with Grubhub, uh, a lot, some VCs as well as public company investors really breaking down their unit economics and the specifically the de deterioration of their unit economics over the last couple of months where a lot of the operational 
um, advantages to scaling that was assumed in the valuation of Grubhub mm -hmm. really hasn't come to fruition. Specifically, a big one is marketing. Was the expectation is they get to a certain percentage of uh, market share and that they'll be able to, on a per unit basis, be able to de decrease their marketing spend. And that has not been the case. That has not flowed through. Right. It's just because that business has become so competitive. Do consumers really care who they go with? DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats, it's all the same, right? I have three on my phone. I have Skip the Dishes, DoorDash, and Foodora. And it really just depends which restaurant is using which. I have zero, I'm completely indifferent as to who I use. That makes sense. And for disclosure purposes, we are short Grubhub. In addition, I should disclose that I'm a huge Domino's pizza fan and eat it every Friday night. So I will be having a pep and bacon tonight along with perhaps some cheesy bread. And so who knows, maybe that explains some of the uh, fourth quarter beat. And that's it, ladies and gents, for episode 55 of the Absolute Return podcast. If you liked it, please leave us a review on Apple iTunes. We'd very much be appreciative of that. If you want to listen to past episodes, you can check them out on absolutereturnpodcast.com. Feel free to reach us, uh, follow us on Twitter. Your handle is... M underscore Kessling. And mine is at Julian Klimochko, K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. And until next week, we wish you all the best in your investing and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.